All right. Again, good morning. It is a good morning. And uh, regarding baptism, uh, I know that there's already at least a couple of others, uh, three others at least, that couldn't be baptized today that want to be baptized. And we're, tr- we're trying to, we, we borrow this from another church, and so we're trying to see if we can keep it for another week. My hope is that maybe we can do this again on Sunday. And uh, Kent, our facilities guy, is just finding out about that. So I also need to talk with him about that. Um, but I know Kent's heart, and uh, if not, he'll make me put it up. Uh, in which I'd happily do that. So if you're interested in being baptized, maybe you've seen this and maybe today wasn't the right time for you, um, then uh, it's very likely that next Sunday or perhaps the 29th uh, we'll have that. I'm hoping maybe for next Sunday uh, since we already have the baptismal. Um, but just go ahead and indicate that on a communication card or let Pastor Randy know or myself or whatever. That'd be awesome. Also, I want to just emphasize something as we're getting ready to take this journey called 40 Days in the Word in your program are sermon notes. When you come in during these next six weeks, I want you to grab a program because it has sermon notes in it, and I want you to take notes. And if you don't have notes right now, raise your hand. The ushers will come by and give you a set, and uh, they have pens as well. Here's the thing. Some of you uh, are habitual non-note takers, all right? I'm gonna inc- I want to invite you to up your game in this season, all right, and uh, to come in and uh, to uh, take some notes Bring a pen, and we're going to be learning some amazing things, and I want you to be a part of that. This morning, we're asking a really important question as we launch into this. The, the question is this, and it's on your notes there, and it's, why can I trust the Bible? Why can I trust the Bible? How do I know it's trustworthy? And the Bible, by the way, you may know this, maybe not, I don't know. The Bible is the most translated and most read book in the world. That is an absolute truth. Do you know that um, the Bible never makes the New York Times bestseller list? Do you know why? Because it would always be number one. It would. If you look at book sales, it's, it, it eclipses everything. In fact, I've seen sometimes where if you added all of the top ten together... The Bible would outsell those. And it's just true. And then worldwide, it's just crazy. Uh, apparently, the Bible is an important book. So important, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says this. says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I just want to park for just a minute on that phrase, God breathed. That phrase, God breathed. Uh, some of your uh, translations might use the word inspired. And the word inspired, I think, sometimes conveys the idea that, you know, an author had a good idea. But this is a much stronger word. If I were to inhale and let the air pass through my vocal cords and then move my mouth, something would come out. It would be the voice of Chad. And you would hear the words of Chad. And the point of this is when it says that it's God-breathed, it, this is the voice of God contained in, uh, in, in, a, in a bound book, in words. And it's God-breathed. And so 
when we read scripture, if I had my Bible in front of me, uh, <laughs> thank you. You know, it's interesting that Bible's teaching, pastor's teaching on the Bible. He doesn't even have his Bible with him. What does that say? Um, but it's God breathed. And so God breathed life into this, into the, into the word of God. And when we open the word of God, guess what we do? We take a breath that God has breathed. And it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Psalm 119 says this, that all of your commands can be trusted. God, all of your commands can be trusted. Is it trustworthy? Is it really trustworthy? In fact, Time Magazine has asked that question at least twice and has put it on two of its magazine covers. I think we might have a slide for that. Because the world is still asking this question. You know, there's tons of other books they could ask questions about, but apparently the Bible is so important and so well read that it bears a very good question. That is, why is it so trustworthy? Why do people read it so much? And it's important that we make up our minds about this issue. Not because of, we make up our minds not because of, about what other people have said about the Bible, what you've heard, but in this 40 days adventure, after making a thorough understanding of what the Bible claims about itself, what history reveals and what science teaches us, to be able to say, yes, I am trusting this. Not to just say it's a reliable book, but that it becomes a foundation for our very lives. We're going to look at seven things this morning about how we know we can trust the Bible. But before we launch into those, I want to just ask the Lord's blessing as we pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you open it to us? Just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, are you ready? All right, first step in 40 days in the Word. I can trust the Bible, number one, because of this. Because it is historically accurate. It is historically accurate. It's not just doctrinally accurate, but in every other area as well. There's real people in here. There's real places, real times in history. These are about real events. And we know that the Bible is, uh, is reliable because, you know what? God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says this, It is impossible for God to lie. Psalm 34 and verse 4 says that the word of the Lord is right and true. The, Lord, the word of the Lord is right and true. And to talk to us about uh, the reliability of Scripture, historically speaking, I'm going to invite Jason Dre. Would you say welcome to Jason? We're going to do the chisel thing, right? Oh. So, uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Chad. So how do we know that the Bible is historically accurate? I mean, historians continue to challenge over and over and over again. Well, you probably made that up, or that was written after, or all those other things. But we know that the Bible is historically accurate because of a couple different things. The first one is we go by a good test of history because there were eyewitness accounts in the Bible. Okay? So if we think about some of the things that happened in the Bible... Moses was, was there when the Red Sea got parted. Okay? Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho fell. The disciples, they're in the upper room when Jesus was resurrected and appeared to them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all wrote about Jesus resurrecting and appearing to them in the upper room. 
the Bible, you know, the print press, you know, Chad, he's got a version, Dan's got a version, I've got a version, you guys all have versions. When the Bible was originally, you know, passed down generation to generation, they did it not by word by word, but by letter to letter. They knew how many letters specifically were in each book. So there's supposed to be 1,653 A's in the book of Isaiah, for instance. If there was 1,654, oops, throw the... Throw the scrolls out. Time to start over. So there were scribes that their whole lives, that's all they did, was they were going to word, not word by word, but letter by letter, copy the Bible. They had specific widths on columns, 30 letters wide, not 30 words wide, 30 letters wide. Okay? So they went through very specifically on copying this. Now, one of the greatest inventions was actually... Uh, when the print press came about, because then they could mass produce the Bible. But before that, you know, handwritten. That's, that's how you'd spend your day. Okay. Um, has anybody heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? We've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I be, believe was in the 1960s, was so utterly important because there were so many questions, you know, especially like Isaiah, for instance, right? He predicted that Jesus was going to come. He predicted that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. He predicted Jesus' death. Well, what historians would come back and say is they would say, well, yeah, you probably just wrote that in after Jesus got, you know, Jesus came to, to, the, to the earth and then he died. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered, and they found the entire Old Testament minus the book of Esther. And they, through archaeology, through the, through the, through the great thing of technology, discovered that these were written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Okay, so, which leads us into archaeology, right? We're really good at digging stuff up. That's something, uh, you know, something that we're wired. We just, we want to dig, we want to discover, we want to know why, we don't want to know where. And archaeology is the third, third reason, the third measurement of why we know the Bible is historically accurate. We've done some digging. Okay? Pool of Siloam, where the blind man was healed. We found that. We've dug that up. Parts of Herod's temple. We've dug that up. You know, Luke wrote about, uh, you know, in the book of Acts. He talks about 54 different cities, 39 different countries, and 9 different islands. You guys all remember Solomon? Solomon, they're like, there wasn't horses when Solomon was alive. All there was was camels. Well, we dug that up too. And then we found in his chariot cities thousands and thousands of stables. So again, historians proved wrong because we did a little bit of digging. The Empire of the Hittites. We've heard of the Persian Empire. We've heard of the Roman Empire. But the, the Hittites, they didn't exist. There's no empire. What are you guys talking about? Well, then some professor in the 1900s, as he was doing some digging ironically enough, found thousands and thousands of tablets in the capital city of the Hittites. Oh, I guess the historians were wrong again, and the Bible was right. So, just to recap, so archaeology, eyewitness accounts, and that second one, which is drawing a blank right now, is the extreme care 
that the Bible was copied. Those are the three ways we can tell that the Bible is historically accurate. Chad, I'll hand the rest off to you. So our resident historian. You can, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, they take uh, tours to the very place where St. Paul had a, uh, if you read in the book of Acts, where his uh, boat crashed. There was a, a shipwreck that he was a part of. And uh, it's, you know what they call that bay today? St. Paul's Bay. It's there. And uh, you can check it out. It's, you, can go, you can go to Google Earth. Google Earth St. Paul's Bay, and you'll see exactly where his boat crashed. So it's historically accurate. It's also scientifically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. You know, the people who say that the Bible isn't accurate scientifically have either, number one, they probably never studied the Bible, or B, they don't know science. See, God created the laws of science. And he made sure that his word didn't conflict with the laws of science. Now, it's important to note this, that the Bible was not created to be a science textbook. You know, if you want a science textbook, you go talk to Kent Ross, our resident science teacher. And he, he's kind of like my science editor when I have science questions. And, um, and he knows almost everything about science. Right? No. He's shaking his head. <laughs> but it's interesting that when we look at science, we find that the Bible has always been ahead of science. It's always led the way. And uh, there's things in the Bible that says are true long before science ever discovers that they're true. It's interesting, Jay Kepler, who is known to be the father of modern astronomy, he said this, he said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. (laughs) In other words, God established the laws of physics and biology and all the other disciplines, and then we discovered them. And it's makes sense that since God who created the universe, it stands to reason then that his word and his universe would be in alignment. So here's the reason it's scientifically accurate. The laws of the universe, they're God's laws. He created them. So he understands them even when we don't. Even when we don't. On screen, look at Psalm 148 and verse 5. It says, let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command and they came into being. He established them forever and ever. His orders will never be revoked. Fact. Here it is. Truth never changes. It never stops being truth. But here's the thing about science. Science constantly changes. What was printed in Mr. Ross's science textbook even probably a year ago is different than this year's textbook. And it's because science changes. We learn new things. And, you know, one day you've gone to the news, right? And you've seen how one day, you know, um, coffee is going to cause cancer, right? And the next day they're telling you to drink it because it makes you healthy, right? I like that. I like that one better. (laughs) My uh, brother is a surgeon, and I was talking to him recently, and and he said that 25 years ago, uh, peptic ulcers were thought to have been created, or or, uh, the the cause for peptic ulcers was too much acid in the stomach. But but they've discovered that it wasn't too much acid, it was a bacterium that causes it. 
And so now they treat it, and, and peptic ulcers are almost a thing of the past. In 1861, there was a French uh, Academy of Science, and they published uh, a, a writing, and it, and it was titled this, The 51 Incontrovertible Scientific Facts That Prove the Bible is Wrong. Another one, the, the, the title says, Here's 51 Ways We Know the Bible's a Lie, Scientifically Speaking. But today... All 51 facts that they had have been proven wrong by what? Science. Go figure. <laughs> and there's another reason we know that the Bible is scientifically accurate. It's because, partly because of what's not in the Bible. Let me explain. See, if the Bible was merely just a human invention, you'd expect to find the prevailing science of the day in there you know, the, the, the prevailing science of the day when it was written, you'd think the author would include that or the writer would include those things. But it's not there. In fact, just the opposite of true. You find the science of the day and the science of the Bible in conflict. The Bible saying something very different about the so-called wisdom of the day that it was written. For example, a thousand years ago, everyone believed that the world was flat. You know Christopher Columbus? He said, the, the world is she's around. And they said, no, she's a flat. He says, no, she's around. And he was right. But the Bible knew that long before Columbus. In fact, 2,600 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 40 and verse 22. He said, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. The sphere, that's another word which means circle or globe. How did, how did the prophet know that? Well, God knew that and God told him. God revealed it when no one else knew it was true. Think about the ancient people, for example. They believed that the planet Earth was held up by something, all right? The ancient Greeks, they thought that the Earth was held up by a giant by the name of Atlas. Maybe you've seen the, the statue, you know, of, of him holding up the planet. The ancient um, Hindus, they believed that the Earth sat on the back of giant elephants. And uh, they said that when they move, that's what causes earthquakes. Or maybe when they pass gas, I don't know. <laughs> and I kept thinking, well, if, they, if elephants held up the earth, what do the elephants stand on? Well, they had an answer for that. It actually was giant sea turtles. And then I thought, well, what do the sea turtles stand on? Apparently, they stand on a, on a, uh, a giant serpent who's swimming in the sea. And they, this is what the, the, the current thought in those days was. But that stuff isn't in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible doesn't include lies. Ancient Egyptians, they, they, they had a theory that that the earth was held up by five pillars. One thing you, you might not know, or maybe you do, is that uh, one of the pharaohs had a grandson. You may remember his name. His name was Moses. Pharaoh's grandson, Moses, it says, was schooled in the wisdom of the Egyptians. And you'd think that since Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, that some of the science of the Egyptians would be in there, but it's not. There is no mention of the five pillars. In fact, he talks about the creation of the earth in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Job 26 and 7 says this. By the way, Job is the oldest book, one of the oldest pieces of literature on the planet that we know of. He wrote that the God, God stretches the sky over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Job knew that, that, that this was a sphere floating out in space. How did he know that? God told him. 
It was believed that the number of stars could actually be counted. In 150 B.C., a guy by the name of Hipparchus, I don't know if I got the name right, but he announced that he had spent a long night counting stars. And he came up and he said, is definitive fact there is 1,022 stars in the universe. Fact. Right? Well, apparently 300 years ago, 300 years later, a guy by the name of Ptolemy concluded that there were 1,026 so apparently in, in 300 years, he found four more stars. But 2,600 years ago, Jeremiah, the prophet, he said the stars, the number of the stars are infinite. How do you know that? God told him. You know, for thousands of years, the Bible taught, not the Bible, but people thought that all of illnesses and people's temperament was caused by four bodily fluids. It's kind of gross. Yellow bile, black bile, red blood, and blue phlegm. I think someone looked at the blue veins and thought it was phlegm. It's kind of gross when you think about it. But you don't find that in the Bible. Nowhere. They used to believe that too much blood made you sick. And so what did they do? They cut people and bled them to try to get them better. A lot of people don't know that the unofficial cause of, of George Washington's death wasn't the heart attack or the the infection is that when he got sick they decided to bleed him once and he didn't get better so they bled him again and the third day they bled him again and he died why he was empty <laughs> that's why no more today we give people blood it's called a transfusion and they didn't know about that back then but you know what the Bible did. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of every creature is in the blood. Well, hello. Leviticus was ahead of modern science. In the Middle Ages, do you know that 25% of Europe died? One out of four people died from the bubonic plague. Why? Because they didn't know about um, germs. They didn't know about infections. They didn't know about a thing called quarantining. So they would have a sick person and a, a healthy person living or sleeping next to each other. What happened? They both got sick and died. They didn't know about quarantine. But the Bible did. Leviticus 17.11. The life... Excuse me. That's the wrong verse. Leviticus 13.4. It says, put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. They didn't know science. But God did. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Israel went from this small band of herdsmen to this humongous country of millions of people. In part because their God gave them some direction about disease that they couldn't even understand scientifically. They just thought, well, God said it. I'm going to do it. The Bible isn't a science book. But it's always ahead of science. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is flawless. Psalm 12, 6 says the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. The Bible is historically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. Number three, it's prophetically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. What does that mean? It means that what the Bible predicts is true. And this is one of the most amazing things about Scripture. 
The Bible has predicted thousands of events that happened just as God said. Do you know there's over 300 prophecies about Messiah? When he was born, where he was to be born, how he was going to be born. Uh, even predictions about how he would die on a cross. 300 predictions. What are the odds of someone making 300 predictions about you and them all coming true? We might say, wow, that was an unusual coincidence. Can I just say that that would take an awful lot of faith to believe that those 300 things were a coincidence? I think it takes less faith to believe that a God of the universe that created us did that. I mean, think about it. And a thousand years before the Romans crucified Jesus, David wrote and described crucifixion. Before crucifixion was a big fad. He knew about it. How do you know? God told him. It didn't come from David. In fact, 2 Peter says this in verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 21, that no prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. By the way, in Bible times, becoming a prophet was an unhealthy career choice. Here's why. Because according to the law, a prophet was required to be correct 100% of the time. And if they weren't, you got the death penalty. How many people want to sign up for that job? Not so much. By the way, if I'm not the only one who feels stuffy in here, uh, could you check the temp? I see some people going like this. The Bible is prophetically accurate. What the Bible predicts comes true. If you ever uh, met a psychic and he or she asks you for your name and your credit card number, I think you should go get a different psychic. Because they ought to know that, right? If they're really psychic. I'm just saying. Just saying. Do you know that Jesus let himself get arrested? Do you know why? Because he knew what Scripture said about him. Matthew 25 and verse 56. Jesus explained, This is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in Scripture. John said this in Revelations 22 and verse 6, that the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. When we look at Scripture, the odds of all of these prophetic things becoming true, the odds of that happening are astronomical. You have better odds of winning the lottery. It's like what the, uh, I think the baby in the E-Trade commercial said. He said the odds are like the, uh, uh, the, odds are like the chance of getting mauled by a polar bear and a regular bear on the same day. I mean, really, the Scripture is amazingly accurate, 100%. And not only that, number four, it's thematically unified. Thematically unified. What does that mean? Well, it means it has a unified theme. One unified message. Cover to cover, you're going to find one overriding theme from beginning to end. And we're going to talk about that in detail next week. So what's the, what's the big deal about that? Well, consider this. 
Consider what I'm about to tell you. If you read a book, a novel, or a textbook, and it had one author, you would expect it to have a consistent theme throughout, right? You would. But catch this. The Bible has a consistent theme, one story throughout. And yet, the Bible has over 40 different writers who wrote 66 different books in over a dozen different countries on three continents using at least three different languages over a period of 1,600 years by different people from different walks of life. Farmers, kings, soldiers, shepherds, princes, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, scholars, businessmen, and at least one doctor that we know of. And not only that, but they wrote in some of the most unusual places. They wrote inside of caves, ships, palaces, prisons, Deserts. Jonah, by the way, wrote one of the greatest psalms inside the belly of a fish. Couldn't get a more diverse group of people. And they make one story, one book with one story without contradiction. Imagine this. If I gave you 50, selected 50 people and I gave you 50 pieces of paper and I said, okay, I want you to cut a shape out of that piece of paper. And I asked you 50 people to put those on the floor. What are the odds that those 50 pieces of paper are going to connect and resemble a map of the 50 United States? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Do you think maybe God had his hand in the creation of this text? It's absolutely amazing. So what's that theme? What's the story from Genesis to Revelation? Luke writes this in chapter 24. That beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, by the way. Jesus is having a teaching moment with his disciples. It says that Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning who? Concerning himself. In all the scripture concerning him. Who's the book about? It's about Jesus. Some people would say that the Old Testament is about Israel and the New Testament is about Jesus. But consider this. When Jesus was opening his textbook to teach his disciples about what it said about him, he didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. His textbook was the Old Testament. And so he pointed to Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And the theme of the entire Bible is God's plan for redemption. And the star of the story, his name is Jesus. John chapter 5 says this, you search the scriptures. This is Jesus speaking. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. And Jesus says this. He says, the scriptures point to me. The scriptures tell you about me. That was the point Jesus was trying to make. And uh, the next thing you need to know, Jason's going to tell you about. So... The fifth way that you can trust the Bible is because it is confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusts the Bible. You trust Jesus. One plus one equals two. So if you trust Jesus, Jesus trusts the Bible, you should trust the Bible. All right, we're done. No, um, just kidding. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's really that simple. Jesus talks about in Matthew 5.18, he says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, 
Not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is looking at the Bible and he's saying, it's going to last until the end of time. It's going to last until God accomplishes everything that he wants to accomplish in the world. In John 10.35, Jesus says, Scripture is always true. It's not partially true. It's not kind of true. It's not true when you kind of feel like it. It is always true. So Jesus has proclaimed the truth of the Bible. And if he's talking, shouldn't we be listening? Shouldn't we be listening to Jesus talking to us for our lives? So when Jesus says that every sentence, every word in the Bible is true, then that's why I believe that the Bible is true. That's why I can trust it. And the second point is, is when Jesus is talking about the Bible, it's not some really, you know, nice poetry. Ooh, this is really cute. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. You know, I showered this morning, you smell like glue. I mean, it's not, you know, something like that. I just made that up. It was really good. But it's not a history book either. It's not a history book. It's not poetry. It's not a history book. Okay? He talks about it as something that is life-changing. In Luke 11:28, Jesus has to say this. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of O God and obey it. So it's one thing if you're going to read through the Bible and just read it, which, I mean, I've been guilty of. I'm sure that some of us have been guilty of. But to do what it actually says, I mean, that's what's great about the 40 days in the Word, is it's going to transform who we are as people. Because we're not just going to read it, we're going to do it. We're going to obey it. He, that's, that's what Jesus said is the greatest command. Love me and love others. It's pretty good. But he also said, love me. If you, obey, if you obey me, that you show me that you love me. If you love me, you will obey me. He says that all the time. So when Jesus talks about the Bible, he talks about it as a real book. There are real people. There are real events that take place because of a real God that's in our lives today and it was in their lives 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Okay, It's a living God. It's a living, breathing God. So here's some of the... I mean, think of some of the people. Think of some of the characters. Jonah, Daniel, Noah, Adam and Eve... Jesus believed in all those people. He talked about them. He believed in the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah. He taught on that. It wasn't just something that, oh, this was written, you know, that's cool to read, but he actually taught on that. And if he teaches on that and if he talks to us about that, it must be important because Jesus talks with a purpose. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste a breath. He talks with a purpose. And so, if you really think about it, you know, really the, the characters that he really talks quite a bit about is Noah, Adam and Eve, you know, the things that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah. 
And those are some of the most disputed stories in the Bible. They're seen as a a good little fable or a good little moral story. But Jesus doesn't see it as that. He used these as an illustration in his resurrection. So if Jesus believed in Jonah that he was actually in a fish or a whale, it might sound crazy, but you know what? There's a reason that it was written. And because Jesus trusted in it, I'm going to trust in it. And the really interesting thing about trust is this. So often we read the Bible, we, we kind of pick it apart, and we go, you know what, that's true to me. But that's not really, no, that's not really true to me. I really like this part, but I'm not going to like that. I don't, I'm going to take that part out. We kind of try to use it as a, uh, almost as a gospel to justify why we feel a certain way or why this person's wrong and I'm right. We get very self-righteous when we start looking through the Bible. But it's based off of my subjective emotions and feelings. I don't trust those. I'm a roller coaster. And so, again, it goes back to Jesus trusted it. Jesus trusted the Bible. Pretty good reason to trust it. And I'll close with this. So Augustine said, if you believe in the Bible... If you believe in the Bible what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but yourself. I don't know about you, but my emotions, my opinions, not always trustworthy. But I trust Jesus, and he trusted the Bible. So for me, that's a pretty good reason to trust the Bible. Sixth reason is this. It has survived all attacks. It is the, in, in the history of literature, it is the most despised, derided, denied, dissected, disputed, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. What is everyone so afraid of? The truth. Yet... It's still the best-selling and most-read book on the planet in the history of the world. And it's the greatest source of inspiration for art and music and architecture. If you were to go to Europe and see the different things that have been created, they've been inspired by Scripture. And and you look around and, and just the things that people create today. We've seen great artwork and literature. By the way, do you know that our movies, I just, this is a brief aside. (laughs) Do you know that when you see a Disney film, you know, it's got the princess that needs to be rescued. I mean, that's the story, right? She's waiting for the prince to be rescued. Do you know that that storyline is in throughout human storylines all through history where someone needs to be saved? Think about it. Where did an idea like that arise from? You see, God has put these kinds of things in our hearts. And it just sort of comes out in the in a story, like Snow White. 
I mean, it's not about the Bible, but the, the facts, the, the underlying desire for a Savior is there. Because God created us and He has infused us with incredible creativity because we were created in His image. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Amen. It's funny, uh, the uh, French philosopher Voltaire, 17th century, brilliant guy. He was an atheist. And he said this, he said that within a hundred years, the Bible will be forgotten. <laughs> Truth is, everyone's forgotten what he said. <laughs> he is French. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. All right. Yeah, but they haven't forgotten the Bible, have they? No, we have not. And I think God has this funny sense of humor. Um, because did you know that Voltaire's at his death, his home in Switzerland was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society? <laughs> and for nearly 100 years, his home was a Bible bookstore. I mean, that is just, that's, that's totally God. First Peter Chapter 1, verse 24 says that the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. His word stands forever. You know, truth might go in and out of style. It might. It might go in and out of style. But you know what? It never stops being true. I could say the moon was made of cheese, but that don't make it true. And you know what? Repeating something doesn't make it true either, but it might get more people to believe it. I mean, we all know that Elvis is still alive, right? Yeah, saw him at Starbucks the other day. You know, we, believe, we, we do, we believe a lot of stuff that isn't true. Why is that? Well, you know what? Because we believe stuff not just because they're true. We believe things that we want to believe in. I mean, I could say, think, think of gravity, for example. I could say, you know what? You religious nuts, you believe in gravity. I don't believe in a stupid myth like that. I mean, come on, you can believe what you want to believe, but I don't believe in gravity. So I'm going to go up to the Empire State Building, the top floor, and I'm going to jump off. And as I'm floating down somewhere on the 100th floor, you can come out and you can say, hey, Chad, how's it going? And I'm going to say, so good so far. Splat. You see, we don't break God's laws. God's laws break us. Just like the law of gravity. And so when the Bible says that something is immoral or evil, I don't get to pick and choose what's moral and what isn't. God is God. He decides. And so when I ignore God's word, I don't hurt God. I hurt myself. And this brings me to the seventh reason. That we know we can tr trust the Bible. And it's that when I base my life on what is true, when God's Word is the foundation for my life, the Bible has transforming power. has transforming power. Nothing can change lives like the power of God's Word. And I look around the room and I've seen people I see people who have been changed by God's Word or in the process of being changed by God's Word. It takes total drunks and makes them intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Wife beaters become great husbands. Homosexuals go straight. Rebellious teenagers become respectful children. Selfish overspenders become generous church tithers and givers. John 8 verse 31 says that 
If you continue in my word, this is Jesus speaking. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And then he adds this, and you should know the truth. And the truth shall make you what? Free. Free. Did you know that secular universities put the last part of that verse on their walls inscribed in stone? But they intentionally leave out the first part. Which says that if you continue in my word, you shall know the truth. But isn't that just like human beings to leave that part out? Because we'd like to know the truth as long as it's mine, my truth. My truth, you, you could have your truth and I'll have my truth and we'll just live happily ever after. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, it's my truth. If you believe it, that's what is going to liberate, not just some truth, my truth. You know what? I want people to be free. I want you to be free. I want our world to discover the freedom that is in the truth of God in his in his word. That's never going to happen when we pick and choose our own version of the truth. There's one truth, and it comes from one God. And there's one Savior, and His name is Jesus. And you, you look around. You know this, people, that the world is crying out for a Savior. He is. I recently downloaded a song. It's not a Christian song. It's by a group, maybe some of you... Younger folks have heard it by Evanescence. Amazing singer. Her name is Amy Lee. And here's the lyrics to her song, Bring Me to Life. Listen to the cry in her heart. Call my name and save me from the dark. Bid my blood to run before I come undone. Save me from the nothing I've become. And when you watch the video, it is dark and desperate and suicidal. Do you know who her savior is? It's her boyfriend. That's the Disney cartoon. And yet she's depressed. Why? Because ultimately that's not her savior. She, like the rest of the world, is crying out for a savior, just like so many people you see every day. And you know what? You know the real savior, don't you? You know God's word. And you know what? The world is desperately looking like never before. They need people just like you and me who aren't just hearers of the word, but doers, not just talkers of the word, quoters of scripture, but demonstrators of scripture. Avon and Ashley alerted my attention to a news flash that came through Fox News this week. I thought it was so interesting. I wanted to share it with you because in Henderson County, Texas, maybe some of you heard about this. There was an atheist, and he had threatened to sue the county if they didn't take the manger scene out of the courthouse. And in February, he withdrew his lawsuit. And here's why. Because he got very sick. He had developed some severe cataracts, so severe that they were threatening the, his, his sight. He was possibly going to go blind. And he needed medical attention, and he didn't have the money for it. He had to resign from his job as a taxi driver. And that's when a, a woman by the name of Jessica Cry, a Christian woman, started a campaign to raise money from other Christians to collect funds to help this atheist 
with his medical bills. Blew him away. Because he was used to just being insulted and Christians in the community, most of them they were very upset with him. You can imagine why. Do you know he was so overwhelmed by the love of God through these people that he gave his life to Jesus? And he's even rumored to be interested in joining the ministry. That's an Apostle Paul kind of a conversion. He wasn't manipulated into anything. The guy was an intellectual. But you cannot argue with the truth of God's Word, especially when it's demonstrated. When that little truth about turning the other cheek, you see it literally in Christians who are doing exactly that. That little truth about the, the Good Samaritan. Literally, life-changing. Hmm. But the big question for us today really is this. Will Scripture, will God's Word be the authority for my life? That's the, the, the real question, isn't it? Because, you know... We don't avoid the Bible sometimes because we think it's unreliable. People avoid the Bible because we don't like what's in it. It says things that we don't like. But you know what? They're true. Last Easter, we, we talked about the importance of surrendering to the will of God. That when we do that, God shapes us into his original masterpiece. But understand this. You cannot say, I'm surrendering to God, but just not the Bible. You can't. It's like the kid saying to his parents, hey, I promise to obey you, but I'm going to ignore whatever you tell me. Some of your parents of teenagers know exactly what that's like. Romans 12 and verse 2 says this, says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and perfect will. Do you, do you see the promise here? The promise is that God's will is, comes out, and it's good, it's perfect, it's pleasing. It's, it's going to create the life that you've always wanted, but when you read it, sometimes you go, Oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. Forgiving 70 times 7? You've got to be kidding me. No, but you know what? Jesus did that for you. He hasn't forgiven you 70 times 7. He passed that a long time ago with you, didn't he? He's up to like 10,000 times 10,000 with some of us. And he says, you know what? I did it. You can do it. And it just happens when we surrender to the authority of God and the authority of His Word. And I wonder this morning if maybe some of us, maybe again, maybe for the first time, need to come back to the Word of God not as an interesting book that helps me feel good when I read it, but as a manuscript for the direction of my life. A map. And to say, you know what? What it says I'm going to do as best as I know how. And I want to invite us this morning. Would you just bow your heads with me?
And I just want to invite you to just, maybe in the, in the quiet of your own heart, to just lead us in a prayer. And you don't have to pray this out loud, but just between you and the Lord, if, if this represents your heart, would you just pray with me? Dear God, from this day forward, I will accept the Bible as your flawless word to me. And I will make it the final authority in my life. Even when I don't understand it. Even when it's not popular, it's not easy, or I don't like it. You are God, and I am not. Thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. Thank you that you're not silent. I want to love your word. I want to learn your word. And I want to live your word. I surrender to you. I surrender to your word. That it would be the foundation for my life. And Lord, when I have a problem with something that's said in here, I promise to bring it to you and argue with you. And I'm prepared that you might even be smarter than me. I know you are. And so I'm going to bring even the things I don't understand to you and ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach me. Be my tutor. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen.